A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 233 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of our multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like... Thrawn's grip around the throat of his enemies, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Squeak, squeak, squeak! Sorry, we, we're doing an episode about feedback, so I figured I'd give you some, <laughs> some feedback. <laughs> I, I thought for a minute that that's the sound that Chopper makes when Thrawn's got his hand around Chopper. <laughs> Gotta have some big hands to get your hand all the way around Chopper. That's true, that's true. <laughs> you know what they say about chips with big hands? Anyway! Ooh. Well, here at Stars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Like, look at the size of these hands. They couldn't keep my friends safe from the nothing. Questions about... Star Wars that have bothered you for a long time, or simple questions that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we invite you into our studio to answer your questions, your ponders, because, once more, you are the star. So consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of all ages, because here we go, on another adventure beyond the films. That's right, and we have several bits of feedback here, so we'll jump right into it. Our first pair here, so we'll just do them together, come from David Modders. The first one, fairly short, says, uh, Mark, Nathan, you guys are awesome, but we all know this. My son called home and he just said, there's a box from Nathan P. Butler. I said, open it. It was Phasma. Love it. I appreciate all you guys do for fandom. Pondering on, David. So, congratulations, you won one of the uh, the giveaways that we did. Well played, well played. A person that we would love to get a book like that. One of our very, very, very active Beyonders, David Modders. We love you, man. Can't wait to meet you again in another celebration down the road. Amen. And then his longer email, a little bit more detailed, says, Mark, NPB, I really enjoyed your coverage of Inferno Squad, especially the first few minutes when you announced I had won the FASMA book. Thank you again, guys. I wanted to make a few comments on Inferno Squad that I got from Christy Golden herself. I couldn't make it to any of her signings at Star Wars Celebration Orlando, but I got to see her at a small local con in Central Florida last month. This is back in, I guess, September because it was late October when he sent the email. I walked up to her booth, got Inferno Squad and Dark Disciple signed, and then she was nice enough to talk to me for 45 straight minutes. Unreal. First, just like you guys said on the podcast, Christy said she likes to explore moral ambiguities from the good guy side, e.g. she talked about Quinlan Voss in Dark Disciple and the Imperial side, Inferno Squad themselves. She said, It is fascinating to see what makes good people do bad things, and vice versa. 
I asked her about right, wrong, who says what is right and wrong. As you've said, Nate, the terrorist who blows people up thinks he's right. I asked Christy if there is an ultimate right, like God, that would allow anyone on the planet to say something is right or wrong. She smiled and said, yes. Second, I told Christy I was a clinical psychologist, and she said, you must love these characters. I said I did, no doubt. Then she said, Gideon is a psychopath. He killed everyone at the end. Side note, in psychology and psychiatry, we call it antisocial personality disorder. Popular culture calls the person a psychopath or sociopath. Third, Christy brought up something she has noticed and you guys discussed on the show. That is, the crystal aliens. She said that nobody seems to have picked up on what that was about. I like Nate's take on them being a way to bring about a friendship between Del Mico and Pecow. Christy said, A, she loved the idea of a civilization that took care of the dead. She loved that if you were the last person to die, you were taken care of. B, she wanted to contrast this civilization with the bubble, so to speak, that the rebels and empire were in, i.e. battling each other and not seeing the bigger picture of the emperor wanting chaos and a lack of insight and perspective. Well, that's it for now. Pondering on, David Motters. Man, that would have been one hell of a 45-minute conversation. <laughs> I, I gotta say, Christy Golden has definitely become one of my favorites of the new canon. Um, the fact that she explores the gray line, I think that's one of the things I really enjoy. Uh, you know, Legends, one of my favorite characters that explored that line was Coran Horn, and then later Jason Solo, as he was trying to figure out where he stood on the line uh, in the New Jedi Order. I think that's part of why I, I unlike Nate, didn't care for him falling to the dark side because I felt like, you know, he had already towed that line. So to me, that didn't quite feel right. I mean, granted, by the time you get to the end of it all, they made it work. So it does work. But I just felt like the direction they were going with Jason from New Jedi Order into Darkness, by the time we got to the end of Darkness, he went from embracing that gray line. Because I remember Darkness when I was reading that, you know, when I was in the first book, second book, by the end of the second book and into the third book, that feeling fell. But those first two, I was feeling like Jason was about to become this new rogue Jedi. He was going to create a whole new Jedi order or a new order that was beyond the Jedi. You know, he was moving beyond good and bad. And then they were like, oh, no, he's just going to embrace the darkness. Like, what the hell? But to be able to sit there and pick her brain for 45 minutes? Oh, man. I would have been totally – yeah, I'd have been hinting Laura on the whole, uh, you know, is there a force god? Like, uh, you know, do we have an entity living in the force? Like, I'd be, I'd be trying to pick pick that brain there. That's just awesome, man. Yeah, I think the thing that stands out to me there from the comments is the whole thing about the the other side that's not part of the war, not part of the bubble. Because I think that usually within Star Wars, we tend to see this as – you know, good guys, bad guys, light and dark. And for the most part, I think most fans are able to say, okay, well, yes, but there is also a middle ground, which will be anybody who's sort of caught in the battle. It kind of reminds me of the definitions we got back in the Cold War, right? I mean, third world country wasn't supposed to mean poor country. You had the first world, which was the democracies, which is Western Europe and the U.S., the second world, which is the USSR, China, the communist regions, and then the third world was just all these other smaller countries that were caught in the middle of the conflict that the two bigger sides were trying to get control over. Uh, it wound up that when the Cold War ended, they were still lower socioeconomic status, so they became the third world, meaning poor instead of actually going back to the original. And in essence, in Star Wars, we're always looking at, you know, the good guys, the bad guys, the first and second world, so to speak. And then you could say the third world is just all the other 
you know, cultures that don't want to get into it, which they kind of explore in Clone Wars. But there's also, I think, another step that we don't usually see, which is the cultures that are so far removed from the conflict that they're not even really caught in the middle. They just have nothing to do with it, but they exist. Maybe they're in the unknown regions. Maybe they're an ancient civilization that's no longer around. Maybe they're a civilization that's just very isolated. Um, but this idea necessary that everybody has to sort of fall into one side, the other, or caught between is sort of a false trinity that we've come up with. There is a fourth option, which I guess is what these crystalline aliens in a sense were because they were already gone by that point. And I do like the idea of sort of the reverence for the dead. You don't see that as much in Star Wars. You know, we see sort of the thing with Jedi sort of fading into the Force and that level of an afterlife type of thought. But, you know, in real-world cultures, one of the things that we learn, I mean, one of the earliest things that we learned about a lot of the ancient societies was things like, what do they believe about their afterlife? Because, for instance, you know, ancient Egypt, they're burying their dead with all this stuff, and at times even with their slaves, so they could use them in the afterlife. It was something that gave us a sense that, aha, they do believe in something after this life. And then, of course, we got more detail um, as time went on and studying went on. And here we've got something kind of like that, you know, an archaeological type of dig that in essence is showing us a proof of belief in an afterlife by what these crystalline droids are. But we don't realize that's what they are until they actually start moving and doing their thing at the end of the book. So it's interesting stuff. She seems to be drawing on a lot of of real-world history, real-world ambiguity, to really give us something that I think makes the characters very relatable and the situation very relatable. I mean, crystalline alien droids, not very relatable. What they do, quite relatable. You know, so it adds that level of, of realism and humanity to what is otherwise sort of a fantastic concept. Mm -hmm. I just found the aliens themselves just intriguing i mean i was like what you know i want to know more about their society in general i didn't really pick up so much on wanting to know why they were picking up the bodies but just the whole background like anytime anything like that that gets introduced it's old and it's a mysterious technology or a civilization that's now gone like i kind of want like a small little paragraph that gives me a little bit of like oh i found this little book that kind of explained like give me a little tidbit like i i don't know that's that's the hook man that one reels me in a lot <laughs> Droids, why are you saving all of those bodies? Hot dogs. <laughs> Armored hot dogs. <laughs> all right, our next one comes in from Scott Johnson. Scott says, Hey guys, Nate mentioned parallels between Shield of Lies and The Last Jedi on his vlog, given the separate stories which occurred with Finn and Rose and Luke Ray Kylo and Leia Poe Hux throughout most of the film. Just thought I'd mention that I also saw parallels with Luke's characterization in the sequels and the Black Fleet Crisis, given he goes into hiding and reflects on his previous ways, ultimately needing persuasion by Akana, or Rey, to go back and help his friends. Also, I noticed parallels with Anakin Solo slash Tahiri and Ben Solo slash Rey, since Rey and Tahiri were both scavengers intent on looking for her parents. Anything else you guys noticed? I like the movie, but I'm not sure it has the staying ability to remain like other classics. I think in a few years, I'm afraid it may seem dated, since I didn't think the humor would hold up very well. But I liked it nonetheless. Scott. Mm, man. Yeah, so my parallels are more obscure. Like, one of the things I picked up on was the feeling that the First Order had basically become the Vong. 
Uh, you know, you think about the fact that when they decided to start these movies, that's the time frame they were looking at, you know. So they were like, well, what happens in this time frame? Well, the alien invasion, uh, you know, the galaxy gets taken over by this alien group that comes in from outside the galaxy and they take over everything. They start on the outside, work their way in till they've taken it all over the capital and everything. Um, and yet you've got Snoke, who is an entity that came from outside the galaxy, bumped into the First Order as they were rebuilding outside the galaxy. Took over the First Order. No one saw that coming. Not even the First Order. Now he comes in with them and he's doing the same thing. He's taking over the galaxy from the outside in. So I, I, I like those little parallels and stuff. You know, you think about the fact that they were, Chewie was dying in those books and stuff. And they're like, well, we want to keep Chewie alive. So they changed that. And that was part of the reason why they didn't go forward with the new Jedi storyline. And yet, so I feel like there are a lot of little, I don't know, kind of nods or nudges or, or homages to that and I don't necessarily think that's on purpose I just think the fact that it's just such a vague story of an invasion going on that that it's easy for me to draw those parallels but it gives me solace <laughs> don't get me wrong every time I see an aspect of legends that I'm like oh that that kind of carries over like I I dig that I can, I'm down on that like I'm I'm okay with that. It doesn't bother me. I know that there's some people out there that they absolutely hate that these things are being brought over and they're being changed so, so much. But I think for me, the reality is, is you're never going to get Amara Jade like we had her in Legends. So, you know, there's certain aspects of characters that I, I'm, if I'm going to get them in name only, I'm okay with that because otherwise I'm not going to get them at all. I would love to see a Coran Horn pilot make his way across, you know, give me a Kyle Katarn. You know, I mean, there are a couple of characters out there that I would love to see just in name only, even if they're not going to be full on who they were before those type of parallels, you know, there's a lot that they could do with that. You know, it doesn't have to necessarily be a direct parallel. It could be something that's, that's a little lighter on the touch. I think the parallel that stands out to me, uh, particularly when we're talking about Shield of Lies and that sort of thing, the Black Fleet Crisis stuff, is how in the Legends continuity, of course, we didn't know about Padme until Phantom Menace. And we don't actually see the birth of the twins and the circumstances of their birth until Revenge of the Sith. So for a long time in the Legends continuity, it was just assumed that Luke and Leia know nothing about their mother and haven't been able to find out anything about her, their mother. So instead, Luke has to go on this journey to try to figure out, you know, you know, who was my mother? Where is she? What happened to her? And that sort of thing. And in essence, that's the kind of search for parentage that we get with Ray. Of course, with Ray, she has memories of them and is sort of looking for them physically. Like, where are they? Um, but it's still a, a similar type of thing in, in terms of driving the character based on the search for parents who are long absent. I thought that was kind of a nice connection, which a lot of people looked at and said, oh, oh, they're setting her up to be kind of like Luke in Legends. She must be a Skywalker. No, no, not necessarily. But it is a parallel um, that drives the characters. I mean, you got to have something to drive them rather than just, I'm a good guy. I'm doing good things. Well... The search for the parents becomes part of that journey for Rey. Mm -hmm. Now we have a longer one that comes from Dom Nardi. Last Jedi Reactions. He says, Hi, Mark and Nathan. Hope you both have had a great start to the new year. I figure you're going to do a Last Jedi feedback episode sometime soon, so I thought I'd share some thoughts. I really like the film. Not my favorite Star Wars movie ever, but it's a smart and interesting deconstruction of Star Wars tropes. That said... I wanted to get your perspective on an issue that's been bugging me about the sequel trilogy, one that I feel has gotten worse with The Last Jedi. 
I think Lucasfilm slash Abrams started this trilogy too late in the story. By the time The Force Awakens starts, the First Order is already powerful, Ben has already turned to the dark side, Han and Leia have already split up, and Luke has already gone into exile. There's a disconnect between the happy ending in the Ewok village and the beginning of The Force Awakens, so it feels like there's a lot of important backstory that we should have gotten to fill in the details between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. Compare that to the end of Revenge of the Sith, which sets up the state of the galaxy well and prepares viewers for what we get in A New Hope. I have a feeling that part of the fan backlash to The Last Jedi is due to this disconnect between how we left the OT characters in 1983 and what's happened to them in the sequels. For example, viewers don't get to see Luke's growing hubris and his failure to train Ben. The Last Jedi has to convey all of that information in flashbacks, which means we as viewers only learn about it after the fact rather than see Luke undergo that transformation. We as fans will never get to see some of the most important moments of Luke's life, such as his founding of the Jedi Temple or his relationship with young Ben. I can understand why some fans might feel Luke and Han, characters they've come to know and love over decades, weren't given the send-off they deserved. I think starting the story with The Force Awakens also means we just don't get enough information about the First Order or the Republic to make sense of the politics, and I say this as a professor of political science. If you don't read the visual dictionaries or novels, it's not clear what's going on, even by the end of The Last Jedi. How could Starkiller Base really have wiped out the entire New Republic? It might have destroyed the capital planet and part of the fleet, but even on our planet, destroying Washington, D.C. and a few naval bases wouldn't completely destroy our government-slash-military. I'd have to imagine the Republic had military bases throughout the galaxy. On the other hand, what exactly is the First Order? Is it a cult? Or an insurgency group? Does it already control a large amount of territory? I was surprised that planets are already just submitting to the First Order at the beginning of The Last Jedi. I could stretch and come up with some real-world analogies to the political situation in the sequel trilogy, but it would be a stretch. The OT films subtly provided us with enough information about galactic politics to follow along. Then, of course, we don't get much information about Snoke. Yes, we didn't learn much about Palpatine in Return of the Jedi, but that was a different situation. We know what an Emperor is knew the Emperor was Vader's master, and we've seen enough real-world dictators to fill in any blanks. Lucas borrowed visual iconography from Nazi Germany, inviting viewers to think of the Emperor as a space Hitler. More importantly, we as viewers in 1983 didn't have any attachment to the Republic, the old Jedi Order, etc. So Palpatine's rise to power wasn't critical to the story. We cared about Han, Luke, and Leia, and the Rebellion. We were invested in their victory. Snoke seemingly had much to do with the downfall of the New Republic and turning Ben to the dark side, and as such, the deaths of both Han and Luke. I think many viewers expect that if a villain denies the hero's victory, we will at least learn about the villain's motivations. Finally, the mystery around Snoke means the character dynamics in The Last Jedi aren't always clear. What is Snoke's relationship to Kylo Ren? Did they have a close relationship, such that Kylo's killing him was another act of patricide? Or was the relationship more distant, more like between a boss and employee? And what about the rest of the First Order? They don't seem particularly concerned that Snoke was killed. Hux gets hysterical for a minute, but then quickly accepts Kylo Ren as the new Supreme Leader. No further mention is made. Compare that to the turmoil that usually surrounds a dictator's death in real life. Stalin, Mao, etc. As expect over the years, Lucasfilm will publish dozens of books and comics to provide background about the state of the galaxy between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. I'd be shocked if we didn't get a book about Snoke's origin within the next two years. All that said, given that you two care so much about continuity in Star Wars, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts. 
How much is the gap between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens contributing to the split in fandom and the fan reaction to these films? Was Abrams right to start the story at this point? Sorry for the long email. Thanks, Dom. No, I mean, Dom, you're on so many things. Like, dude, you're the needle in the record that is needed to play the music. I mean, like, there's so many things. Like, the one thing that really jumps out when you mention the fact that you, you check out the visual dictionaries and the novels and you get the full understanding of the plot. I think that that was one of the things that really irritated me. Um, the visual dictionary to me, that's always something that's just kind of like a bonus. And yet for the first time, it felt like this was one of the things you kind of needed to get to fully understand what had happened in the film. Um, you know, when, when Hosnian Prime gets wiped out, that's not just the capital. I mean, they wipe out the entire New Republic, you know, the, the political branch, basically the military branch. Like they wipe them out. They decimate them. And we only find that out in the visual dictionary. It really kind of irks me. Um, Cobalt Squadron though, they do explain a little bit more about how the first order is able to take over the outer rim planet so easily. The idea that they're bringing civilization to these worlds and stuff, uh, and the way that they slowly take them over. So I thought that was kind of nice, but, yeah, there's a, there's a lot being crammed into these first two movies of this trilogy that there's just a lot of background that's not there. And, uh, you know, I, I think it opens a door for critics to, you know, pick at that. Uh, you know, they could say that the story isn't fully fleshed out or fully developed or that they're leaning maybe too hard on other uh, mediums. I, I know there's an argument about that of, well, you shouldn't have to grab a book and a comic to understand the movie. Um, and, and while I agree with you, at the same time, we're dealing with a franchise that is bigger than any other type of movie. Uh, this is a franchise that is established that it will work with its books and comics and other things to grow the universe. So in that regard, using these other mediums to flesh out characters in different directions like that is a brilliant move. But you run that risk of, okay, well, we're making the movies longer than ever before, and yet we're still leaving out details that a lot of people are feeling are pretty critical to the enjoyment of the film. And I think with Snoke, Snoke especially, he's one of those that really illustrates the example there because, you know, you get to Rain Johnson, Rain, you get to Ryan Johnson's, uh, The Last Jedi and we just dismiss Snoke so quickly that it's like, oh, well, Snoke never really mattered. And to that, I say, no, no, Snoke did matter. You know, I mean, he was an alien that came from, outside the galaxy, bumped into the First Order, and takes them over. I mean, that's a power player. You know, that's that's something that... That's not like Koran Horn just walking into a bar and then taking over the Empire. I mean, that's that's something major here. And then, like like you suggest, Dom, about the relationship between Kylo and him, you know, how deep did that get? You know, what, what's their obsession with Vader? Do they share the obsession with Vader, or did Snoke turn the obsession on into Ren. There is so much about the relationship there and the fall of Ben Solo that I am looking forward to when we finally get that. I, I, I was originally very optimistic that we would be getting these stories and stuff. But then as we go forward, there's a part of me that's kind of like, man, I, I'm afraid that they're going to keep a lot of this stuff, you know, a mystery. Um, there's an argument for, you know, if we give too much details that we're really boxing ourselves in and what's one thing Lucasfilm has always been worried about doing is tie in their hands. You know, they, they, that's been a big thing from the, the very beginning. And then when they reboot legends, the way they did, that was part of the reason is they didn't want to constrain the writers and stuff. And yet 
when you tell a story this big and this complex, eventually you're going to have to restrain your hands a little bit because it's called a plot. You got to follow the plot. And if you keep the plot so vague that anybody can take the plot in any direction they want, and if you're not dialing in, this is the direction you want them to go, you're going to get an author or, or a director that is going to take and shift. And next thing you know, everything has been shifted with it. Uh, you know, take, take for example, flow walking in, uh, dark nest, you know, and, and when they introduced flow walking, uh, in the new jet order and stuff, that was not one of the force abilities that a lot of people embraced. A lot of people were like, man, you have opened Pandora's box here. We don't do time travel in star Wars. Uh, and, and yet that was Denning's thing, you know, Denning really was working with that. And then they kind of retconned it like, man, maybe, maybe we're making a mistake here. You know, you've, you've really opened Pandora's box here. And so then they kind of retconned it back where it's like, oh, well, yeah, you know, I mean, things go back to normal. The flow of the force goes back to the way it was. Like he's not really changing anything. So when you have these big wide open plot holes and stuff like that, or these undeveloped aspects of the story that you could be waiting to develop later, it runs that potential gauntlet of tripping hazards for the potential writers down the road so i i just keep getting back to that i hope that when we let the directors come in and work on the movies it feels like they've got such carte blanche that i really hope that the story group is you know doing the same thing with them as they are with the books and the comics i feel like the story group's got a big handle on the books and the comics but i feel like when it comes to the directors of the films the film directors are basically george lucas all over again telling the story group hey this is what we're doing get on board. And I feel like it should be the other way around. Yeah, a lot of stuff there in that email. Um, I do think that we need some more of that background. I think that the lack of background was something that people were bothered by for The Force Awakens, and they're still bothered by it for The Last Jedi. It's one of those things where you would expect that between the movies, maybe, you would have a lot of that explanation fleshed out, but instead they didn't, right? Um, does that mean it necessarily should have started earlier? That I don't know. Maybe we should have something in the middle that helps flesh things out as to what has changed a little bit, but that does get rid of some of the mystery, which is part of what's driving our interest in some of the new characters and sort of figuring out what happened to the old characters. I felt like they really wanted to jump into the whole world and go into this in media res, just like we did for A New Hope. But in doing so, weren't really taking into account the fact that, yeah, with A New Hope, we hadn't actually had films that took place before it. We do now, but originally we didn't, so you didn't need necessarily that background. The opening crawl was all that was really necessary to set up that film and understand it, and then they built it from film to film after that. As for the more stories, I almost feel like Dom was was somehow watching the Patreon thing that I just did. Um at a Patreon Q&A where I was asked about basically this very type of thing. I think it was from Jonathan Pickens and had a pretty long explanation about it on this month's exclusive Q&A video. But basically, my thoughts on this, unfortunately, are that we may not get those stories for a long time because it seems like what they're doing, kind of alluding to what Mark said, is that they are... It's like they're gun-shy, right? Uh, you said they might be trying to become the next Lucas or we might have the film director essentially being the next Lucas and telling the story group what to do, it's kind of like they learned the lesson of Lucas too well, right? So, for instance, right, you got Lucas that comes in with the prequels and changes things. Heck, before that, with the special editions, it changes things a little, most notably the whole Han shoots first, Greedo shoots first thing. And then he comes in with the Clone Wars and kind of shatters all kinds of stuff that they didn't have to sort of scramble to deal with. And it all basically came down to 
the Legends continuity had made assertions or made um, assumptions in some cases that didn't wind up proving true when Lucas finally came back to Star Wars, like all Jedi fade into the Force. Well, no, they don't. Um, Jedi can marry and have Jedi children, and the Force can be strong in your family that way. Well, no, actually, you're not supposed to have children. You're not supposed to uh, have relationships and attachments as Jedi, and so on and so on. And just these little things that were just innocuous little parts of the films, but that had a heavy impact on having to require retcons and stuff within Legends because they'd already dealt with those at some point when they didn't think Lucas would step on it. And then you have your 2002 to 2008 version of the Clone Wars that he's like, yeah, do your thing, have fun, do it. And they made it so intricate. And then he's like, you know what? I actually kind of feel like making a cartoon. F it. And I'm just going to smash whatever was there. Y'all can just deal with it, you know, Um, that they... As, as people who were a big part of maintaining continuity for the Legends continuity, now that they're in charge, they don't want to be the next Lucas in the sense of doing that again and having to clean up that kind of mess because now it'll be them responsible and them cleaning up the same mess. But what that means is that they're not really willing to put themselves out there by telling us, you know, big stories, impactful stories, giving us much information in any realm that would not only be possible for future stories, but which might impact future stories. Like, it's not just, we're not going to tell stories that take place shortly after The Last Jedi because we don't want to get in the way of Episode Nine. It's, well, they may still want to reveal some more background on Rey and Snoke, etc., etc., so we're not going to do much before The Force Awakens right now, either. And it's getting out of their own way to the point where it gets in the way of storytelling that seems to actually matter. I would still argue that most of the current novels and current comics don't really matter much in the grand scheme of things. If it's not on TV and it's not in a movie, they're not events that you actually really need to know. I'm still actually kind of shocked that we actually got to see the Battle of Jakku at all in novels. But that seems to be where it's being confined. Like they've said, it's off limits to everything else. We'll have it for the novels. Well... You probably ought to be doing that for more stuff, so the stuff that we're getting between films when we go to the bookstore and the comic shop actually seems like there's any heft to its meaning whatsoever. Granted, right, you shouldn't have to read a book to understand a movie, but if you watch a movie and want more information, Star Wars has proven in the past that what you do is you turn to the EU, you turn to the books and comics and such, read those, play the video games, and that's how you get that information, but it really isn't there yet. Um... As for the whole Snoke thing, I saw the Snoke thing as, as far as the relationship with Kylo Ren, as sort of abusive parentage. So yes, in essence, Snoke is sort of the parent that he had once uh, he's no longer with Leia or Han or even with Luke as a mentor. But you, I mean, you see a lot in, a, a little bit in The Force Awakens, but a lot in The Last Jedi where, where Snoke is kind of jerking his chain emotionally and he's either giving support or withholding his affection, withholding his approval depending on what Kylo does at any time. It's not that parental, you know, I will love you no matter what happens type of mentality. Uh, instead, it's, you know, uh, uh, you're just, uh, you're just, uh, uh, what is it, a boy in a mask, right? Uh, uh, which, which, you know, it is mask. He's not meaning to offend Muslims out there. He, even though it sounds like he says, you're just a child or a boy or whatever in a mosque. No, he's not saying mosque. <laughs> he's saying mask. And, you know, he says stuff like, you know, I saw what every mentor or whatever or every master would want to see, uh, the, the, you know, the power and the, and the potential of your bloodline. But, 
now I think maybe I've been mistaken. And it's only when it looks like he's about to need to be convinced to do what Snoke would see as the right thing, of course, what we don't see as the right thing, and kill Rey that he's like, you know, do this and fulfill your destiny. Um, very much jerking him around the way that an emotionally abusive parent would be. And it seems as though he's also physically abusive at times. Um, so if Star Wars, and I, and I still argue, Star Wars is in many ways, at least in the films and the TV series, about family ties, whether it's the families that were born into or the families like in Rebels that we choose, in essence. That what you've got is all kinds of different parental dynam- dynamics and family dynamics, and at times, part of what helps make our evil characters evil or dark side situations dark side is that we find a way to sort of twist those relationships into something that is unhealthy. And here, that's kind of what we've got, right? We've got this abusive parent type thing going on um, that is making it unhealthy. I'm sure if we could get Dom and uh, David Modder to actually have a conversation about this, I think we would get this massive, awesome conversation going because uh, it sort of takes the political side and a lot of the stuff that Dom was talking about and puts it into the psychological aspects um, that David gets into. But um, I guess the last thing I would say on that is just that does it feed the split in fandom? Absolutely. I don't think it's the cause, though, right? It's exacerbating the situation. I think there's a lot of people who are predisposed to not liking the new films because of what happened with Legends, because uh, Disney is not, quote-unquote, their Star Wars and so forth. You have the people out there who are just very much against the idea of diversity and see any type of diversity, whether it's diversity just for the sake of diversity or diversity with a plan, sees all of that as an equal, screw that, it's social justice warrior, this and that. Um, that don't look at the nuance of, okay, she's a female lead. Does that matter? Why would they have done that? As opposed to it being, oh, they've chosen a female lead, they're just doing it for diversity, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of different things causing people to sort of have this, it's like they're primed and ready for a negative reaction. And then... As the films come out, they look for other things that are causing them to sort of build that negative reaction and to justify that negative opinion. So in essence, this is adding fuel to the fire, but it's not what's starting it in the first place. It's a log. It's not gasoline being thrown on. (laughs) Right, right. As Billy Joel would say, lack of books didn't start the fire. It was always (laughs) burning since basically the Disney buyout. Right, right. And, and you pointed out some things, too, that really jumped out to me. You know, the, the theme of Star Wars being a family theme. You know, you got Luke's family being tied into all these events. Then you've got Rebels that, like you said, proves that family can come from anywhere. And now we've got Rey, which is basically the same Rebel story in a sense, only on a smaller scale. Yet their family, like I was thinking about that, like, you know, you got Rey and you got Finn, you got Poe. You know, you could almost say that they're a family. And yet what do you have plot wise? You don't have any kind of family. Like they're not the only people getting close are Finn and Ray. Like everyone else is just kind of there. Like they they really haven't done anything film wise to make that group feel like a family. And so I kind of wonder. You know, you think about the fact that we've got the first two films over and out of the way, and we only have one more film to wrap up this trilogy. So if if they're keeping it as a trilogy of story here, it's all coming to an end in the next one. And yet I feel like there's just so much not said and told it feels like we need to have a whole couple seasons of episodes to kind of fill out these characters more and establish these meaningful relationships and and make these people care more about each other i mean you know ray the big thing she's got going for her is that she's just a jedi i mean she's got the ezra and kanan aspect everybody wants a jedi on their team 
But aside from that, there's nothing that she has provided, said, or done in the films that should be endearing anyone to her because we haven't seen it. <laughs> you know, we, we've seen her talk to a couple people here and there. Mainly, it's mainly just Finn. You know, I, I kind of keep wondering, like, are we going to get a moment where she works with Poe? And I really think the next one's going to jump forward in that regard because I think that's the only way they're going to be able to say that that's, yeah, that was our intention. Oh, don't worry. We'll tell you about it later. We'll give you all that backstory, how they got so close. But... So I, and, and I think in a, in a way that that plays into the issue that you'd mentioned about the big three and, and the expectations people had. I know for me, that was a huge thing. Um, it wasn't something that destroyed. It wasn't my tap out moment, but it's definitely, I don't care for Han, Luke and Leia, the personifications in canon. You know, it's, it's just not my cup of tea. And I can say that without any anger, any malice. Uh, you know, it's just solace here. I, I understand it for what it is. I've got my legends library of stories that I enjoyed the big three in that version. So I love that. I love that aspect of their story. And I hope that as we get more details, there are things that they will put out there that will endear me to this new version of the big three. But yeah, it's, it's that so much stuff happened that we weren't there for. We weren't part of that ride. You know, I, I mentioned legends and stuff and I, I do have some rose colored glass. A lot of people are like, Oh, there's a lot of crap in legends. There was a lot of bad stories. And I admit that, you know, Luke and, and Mara went through a lot of terrible things too. I mean, Luke lost his wife in that one. I mean, you know, two, two of his nephews. I mean, there was a lot of family tragedy all the way around in the other story too. There are highs and lows, but I, it's that lack of story that canon is putting out there i mean we're getting a plethora of stories and yet sometimes it feels like the relevant stories the stories that people are craving are the ones that we're not getting and that's that just boggles my mind it, it also boggles my mind that we got people like dave filoni that are, are some of the you know the forefront the, the trailblazers of storytelling right now why isn't filoni on the story group i mean that's a name that you would think would be right there next to chi and pablo but he's not it just boggles my mind and the last thing I'll say on this one before we move on to the next email is something that I had actually jotted down to say, and it completely slipped my mind as I was speaking a moment ago, uh, which is, you know, on the whole thing of how they're sort of gun-shy, I would say that that is not just about where they put the stories. I, I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I was very optimistic about the story group in the first place as a guiding hand for Star Wars. Right now, they don't have a plan. They do not have a plan. They have never had a plan. Um, they're just going to say, okay, well, we're going to have some very basic story beats here, and then writer, do whatever the hell you want, and we'll make sure you don't contradict with something else, and we'll give you some suggestions on ways to connect one thing with the other. But, yeah, there is no plan. There is a business plan for how many books a year, comics a year, movies a year, TV shows a year, but is there a plan for Star Wars's ongoing arc of stories? Not a chance in hell, not based on what we have seen. It's scary. Yeah, and it's going to leave you with situations like, you know, Abrams kind of thinking about what he might do in the future or them thinking about what should episode nine be before Abrams even came into it. And then here's Ryan Johnson's Last Jedi. And then everybody's like, oh, well, crap. Back to the drawing board, because a lot of stuff we thought was going to be the case by the end of Episode Eight isn't. Now we've got to sort of figure out where the story goes from here. If there was a grand plan, there would be no, we have to figure out stuff from here. It would have been, we already kind of know, and we kind of planned it out. The way that a novelist plans out, say, a trilogy of books ahead of time. 
Or how they did the New Jedi Order. I mean, they had the Bible that all the authors had. They all got caught up on the background material to the same page. They were all on the same page. Even when they brought new authors in, they caught them up quick to where everyone was at. It reminds me in a lot of ways of Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5, right? Babylon 5's big thing was that J. Michael Straczynski, in essence, had the entire thing or much of it planned out from the get-go, with each season having certain sort of chapter-esque uh, or book-esque feels to them, like book one, book two, book three, and so on, with different ways to deal with if a character, uh, an actor decided to leave and what to do with that character. But there are things set up in, say, season one that don't pay off until late season four. There is a grand plan, whereas you have Deep Space Nine that tells a very similar story, partly because, you know, Straczynski pitched the original pilot script ideas to Paramount, and they said, nope, nope, we're not going to do it, and then launched a Star Trek series where they turned around to the people behind Star Trek and were like, you should include this, you should include this, you should include this. I think the the biggest giveaway factor, aside from the fact you got a religious figure as the leader and it's set on the space station, etc., etc., is that in the original Babylon 5 pilot script, you had a shape-shifting security chief. They didn't do it for Babylon 5 because it was too expensive, but that's exactly what Odo wound up being in um, Deep Space Nine and so forth, but I just finished watching all seven seasons of DS9 recently, and it doesn't feel like DS9 had that plan. There are points at which you feel like maybe this chapter has a plan to it, but it's all over the place at different points, and a whole lot of filler, where basically you think, okay, they kind of had a broad sense, but they really weren't very specific, whereas you could imagine Straczynski sitting there with a detailed outline, you know, Roman numeral one, A, uh, Arabic numeral one, and so on and so on, but we don't really see that uh, with DS9, and that's kind of what's happening here. Like, we thought it was going to be very Straczynski-esque, and instead it's turned to be more Berman and Pillar kind of stuff. I think it was Berman and Pillar behind DS9, um, and it's just not what we expected, and we're having to sort of rethink our thinking, even those of us who, at the beginning, were sort of, the reason we were giving the benefit of the doubt was, of course they're going to have a plan, that's what they're there for. No, it turns out that's not actually what they're there for. And to be fair, they've been saying since early on, that's not what we're there for. This is actually what we're doing. But I think we all sort of took it with a, uh, with sort of a assumption of truth that, of course, there's going to be some type of overarching plan somewhere that just doesn't seem to be the case. All right. Our next email, a short one comes in from Max. And uh, Max says, this is Max Cunnington from Australia. So good day. Um, wow, that was very stereotypical of me. I'm, I'm sorry, just just hello from... What's the opposite of down under? Up above? Up here. Up above? But that makes us sound like we're... You know what? We're, we're, we're just the upside go. down. That's that. We're the upside down. You guys are actually on top. There you go. It's somewhere around here. There's a creature with a weird face that looks like a flower or something. Uh, but anyway, Max says, Hey guys, in Star Wars Battlefront 2, Shriv mentions that he was there for the liberation of Sullust. So, was he a member of Twilight Company, or just a laborer that got recruited after the battle? Thank you for this awesome podcast. I like it more than Jabba the Hutt likes his Twi'lek slaves. Ooh. That, that's, that's a lot of like. I appreciate that. And Shriv, okay, Shriv's the character that I grew to love right away. Uh, and, and not from the book, the game. The game made me love that character. I want to say yes, absolutely. He was, uh, part of the other group, you know, whether he was a member or just someone that was working on the fringes or, you know, was just there on the base. I, he just, he's got that look, man. You, you could just see him standing in the background anywhere. So 
I would love to say, yes, that was him. Uh, I hope uh, someone in the story group decides to make that the case down the road, but who knows? But yeah, that's my, my fandom outlook on that is absolutely. I would hope so, right? Because it would provide some connective tissue because Twilight Company really hasn't been referenced in other stuff very much. But at the same time, I sit back and I'm thinking back to right around the time that Twilight Company came out. And it's the novel that shows the liberation of Sullust. Meanwhile, the liberation of Sullust is being explained in an RPG sourcebook released around the same time using the explanation of the liberation from Legends, not from canon. <laughs> so, and granted, the, the RPG for Fantasy Flight Games is kind of a blending of Legends and canon. It doesn't really fit clearly into either of them because they draw from both. It's supposed to be that authentic Star Wars experience and all that kind of stuff instead of being one continuity or another. But it seemed like for a while there, they weren't quite sure what they wanted to do with the liberation of Celest, old version or new version. So part of me wonders, when they were putting together the story for the game and making that reference, were they purposely meaning to reference Twilight Company? Or did they just know that at some point it gets liberated, and maybe they were even thinking back to the Legends version of it, and that's what they were hearkening back to. I'd love to think that it's, oh, Liberation of Sullust, he must have been there, he was probably part of Twilight Company, that that's something we could take as a given, but it could also be, oh, he was there for the Liberation of Sullust, they knew it was liberated, they knew nothing about Twilight Company and never read that or understood anything about that book. So I guess he was just there somehow, for some reason, in some respect. You know, I don't think we can assume that he would have to have been part of it, because I don't know that the people behind the game would have cared enough. You would hope so because that was a book based on the first Battlefront, sort of, or tied into the first Battlefront, that if there's going to be any book that they reference, it'd be the one that was a tie-in to their own freaking game. But I don't think we can take that for granted at this point. No, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one, man, especially, because you think about the fact that that authentic experience, it's basically blurring the waters in the way of, like, how Marvel comics, like, say, okay, I follow Miles Morales Spider-Man. I also follow Champions, which he's a member of that team. But yet, neither one of those comics really addresses the fact that he's doing things in the other. It's like, in the one, in the main line, he's, like, thinking about leaving being Spider-Man altogether and go off and, and find out who Miles Morales is. And then the other one, he's still cracking jokes and everything's fine, hunky-dory, he's everybody's buddy. It's like, this, wait, this doesn't quite line up? Like... So, you know, you get that kind of sense of maybe that's something that's happened as well here. <laughs> Our next one comes in from Bill Delancey, who says, Hey, Mark and Nathan. Hope you can help me out with some book suggestions. My favorite era of Star Wars is the prequels, and my favorite movie is Attack of the Clones. I recently started watching the Clone Wars cartoon at the suggestion of a friend. Now I'm looking for good books in that era. Obi-Wan is my favorite character, and I love when he and Anakin are together, so books with them as the focus would be what I'm most looking for. I'm also open to any other books, specifically about the time gap between episodes 2 and 3. Favorites, ones you think are important, anything like that. I love the show. Thanks for what you do. Your passion for the books is what made me pick them up in the first place. Thanks. May the Force be with you. Bill Delancey. Oh, Bill, so liking stuff that's around uh, Attack of the Clones and stuff... I would I would say check out the MedStar books. They're an interesting read in and of themselves. Uh, but one I would definitely suggest checking out is Karen Travis's books. Uh, you know, as they get closer to uh, the five hundred first and I, Order sixty six, I, I enjoyed all of them. But they do start to get a little repetitive in the aspect of you know the Jedi are bad kind of point of view. Uh, but when you're if you're into clones and stuff, like this is your jam, man. This is this is really good stuff. 
when it comes to the Anakin and Obi-Wan stories, um, for me, honestly, the ones that really jump out are the Jude Watson young reader books where Anakin's still a Padawan. Um, those were, they were a great set of books about them, you know, basically becoming master and Padawan. Uh, Rogue Planet was all right. That one's also Anakin still young. It's like pretty much right after, uh, the Phantom Menace there. I want to say it was the Cestus Deception. It's a good one with Anakin and, and Obi-Wan where they're, but it mostly focused on Obi-Wan. There aren't as many in that era as I wish there was. Uh, Jedi Trial, I remember that one was somewhat fun. I enjoyed that one. Uh, and there was the Siege, the Gambit Siege books that I didn't get through them. Uh, I can't remember why exactly I didn't finish them, but they might be something you might enjoy. I think by the time I got to that, I felt like I had already learned enough about that era and I didn't really need to know the rest of it. Cause I, I think it was Gambit or, or stealth. One of the two, I was halfway through it and I never finished that one, but they, they definitely are ones. If, if that's what you're looking for, those are definitely some of the funner reads for you. Uh, but when it comes to Anakin and Obi-Wan, man, I, it's hard for me because like the pinnacle aspect of their relationship, that, that, striking of the chord of my heart when Obi-Wan goes, you are my brother, Anakin. Like that for me came from the dark horse comics. Uh, the clone wars from the comic books really built that up of they were brothers. In fact, there was a, the, one of the arcs is called they were brothers. Um, and so for me, like when I think about their relationship, that's where I would push you. It would be into the comics of dark horse. So, Hmm. I think most of those suggestions I would be right there alongside him, especially Jedi Apprentice. I mean, Jedi Apprentice, that book series by Jude Watson is really good. I would say it's probably the strongest of any of the ones that we get in that same kind of line because we had that and then we had Jedi Quest and we had Last of the Jedi, which was actually pretty good as well. But if you're looking for adding depth to what we see on screen, certainly Jedi Apprentice does that. I would actually say that the first thing I would turn to is the novelization of Revenge of the Sith by Matthew Stover, if you haven't read that. Yeah. Um, that is why we have, and I coined this years ago, I don't even remember if it was this show or even before this show. It may have been long ago, like Chrono Radio days, but I coined the term the Stover effect, which is that idea of when you have an adaptation or a tie-in story that adds so much depth and backstory and context to the story itself, that it makes him basically um, partaking of that main story all the more rewarding. So, for instance, for me, listening to the audiobook, the unabridged audiobook of Revenge of the Sith before seeing the film greatly enhanced my experience of seeing the film for the first time to the point where I almost feel like it was a completely different experience than I would have gotten otherwise. So, the Stover effect. Um, that is a fantastic one, and it gets into the psychology of characters very, very well. There's a part of me that says, if your favorite film is Attack of the Clones, and for me, it was... Back when it first came out, I mean, my first episode of Chrono Radio was on the day that the film came out. I went to a midnight showing, recorded the, my first podcast episode later that day, and declared it to be the best Star Wars film I'd ever seen. I don't agree with it anymore, um, but I was certainly caught up in the interest and the, and the excitement at the time. And I recall that I was excited at the time to read the book The Approaching Storm. Now, is it a good book? Eh? Is it a fun book? Eh? But it does explain the border dispute on Ancyon that's mentioned at the beginning of Attack of the Clones. <laughs> so if you want to have that full context, then reading The Approaching Storm is worth it. I don't think it's going to be a book you're going to get a ton out of relative to some of the other things you can read, like Jedi Apprentice. But it does 
have that sort of minor Stover effect in that it does give a little bit of background so that there's a uh, a context to that when you hear it in the film. But everything that he mentioned, you know, MedStar duology, uh, Jedi trial, and so forth, keep in mind those are all Legends continuity stuff, right? They're the continuity that is no longer the main Star Wars continuity as of basically mid-2014. Um, if you want something that fits the new story group canon that is going to deal with it, basically there is nothing. There's very little, if anything, really that takes place in the prequel era unless it is building up something for something else like Catalyst or things that we get a little bit of in, uh, uh, say, you know, maybe Lord of the Sith is kind of around that time, a little while after Revenge of the Sith, but it's in the gap between three and four, not two and three, but it's there. Um, really the only big Obi-Wan and Anakin focused story that we've gotten really since the reboot is the Obi-Wan and Anakin comic series. And it's pretty bad. Uh, it means little to nothing. You know, it's one of those ones that's it's answering questions that we never asked because now we can look back and say, ooh, that's the story in which this happens. Uh, and and that tells us why this other thing happens. Because both of those are things that we didn't know existed until the comic itself. So in essence, it's trying to sort of give itself relevance, even though outside of the pages of that comic, it has no relevance. Um, it's just not a great comic to check out. So from a canon standpoint, I would say you're out of luck. From a legend standpoint, there's a lot of great stories taking place in that era with Jedi Apprentice being one that stands out. And if you want to see more about um, what happens with uh, Anakin and other characters in between episodes two and three, then check out Jedi Quest, which is the follow-up uh, after Jedi Apprentice. They're all going to be uh, younger reader books from Scholastic in those cases. Mm -hmm. Another one I think of in the Legends, too, was uh, Dark Rendezvous, where you get a uh, Yoda story with him and Dooku. That was kind of fun. Funny. That's the name of my Raylo slash fiction. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't do the slash thing. <laughs> I just always thought that was just a very suggestive sounding title. You know, it's it's the Star Wars Fifty Shades of Grey. Dark Rendezvous. And then the sequel will be Darker Rendezvous. And then the next one will be The Darkest Rendezvous. And so on and so on. And it just gets crazier over time. Turns out that uh, Jocasta knew was... Uh, she she had her own little special room. And we're not just talking about the one with the artifacts in the Jedi <laughs> Temple. <laughs> well, I was thinking, like, this could have been the, the Quinlan Voss Adventures story title. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. Yeah, but hey, hey, he likes them bald, so it's okay. Um, all right. Our next one comes from Shaylor. Now, am I pronouncing this right? Uh, Durinlow? D-U-R-A-N-L-E-A-U. Durinlow? Uh, it's like it's French origin. Uh, but Shaylor has this to say. Hey, Mark and Nathan. Shaylor here. After The Last Jedi came out, I found I haven't been trying to speculate on what's going to happen next in the saga. Uh, I would note here that the subject line of the email is, Speculating on Star Wars is like guessing a number that hasn't been picked yet. Which, again, means they have no plan! I think. Continuing on, I'm not sure why exactly that is. Up until The Last Jedi, I was reading everything, looking for details from the start of the new canon onward. Speculating about The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, etc. Lately, I've just lost all interest in doing it. I think mostly it's because of the reports of Ryan Johnson's blank page. If Lucasfilm really didn't ever have an overarching plan for where the sequel trilogy would go, and each of the movies in the trilogy are just made up after the previous one's script is finished, what's the point of speculating? 
It's like I'm being asked to guess the number and the person hasn't even picked it yet. Granted, that's just really on me personally, not Lucasfilm. I think some other things are, it seems like the new canon material isn't that important. We aren't going to get some important detail that gives us a hint of what's to come. It seems that material is made after the movie story is set in stone. They take little details like the long fishing rod from Legends of Luke Skywalker and the scene in The Last Jedi. They're Easter eggs, but nothing of real importance. Sometimes things seem to be purposely misleading as well, like the cliffhanger in the story mode of Battlefront 2. I feel that was put there to make us think that they could have been Rey's parents. It felt like a cheap move to me. I think if there was an overarching story director for the franchise, and I nominate Dave Filoni, or even the story group, they could put some weight onto some of the other material. I certainly think it was a mistake to not have a basic layout for the new trilogy when they started. I enjoyed both for what they are, but they feel a little disjointed. What are your thoughts? Have you guys felt the same way? Well, that's enough of my incoherent ramblings. I'm off to watch the final three episodes of Rebels at Disney Studios. Thanks, guys. Really enjoy the show. Shaler. P.S. I'm glad you're still enjoying the San Diego Comic-Con 6-inch Black Series Thrawn, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, it's glorious, man. I love it. Absolutely. In fact, uh, with those new episodes of Rebels, I had to pull the uh, Malachor, or or however you call it, her uh, Harris little family tree statue out and put it in her hand because I was like, oh, that's just so awesome. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that thing. Uh, man, you, you're so on the nose here with parking speculation. For me, it's been the same boat. I mean, speculation has always been one of the fun aspects of podcasting about Star Wars. And yet when it comes to the movies and what could go forward, I feel like I'm constantly saying the sky's the limit. Anything could happen. And yet what we're getting is feeling a little lackluster. Um, you're on point with the aspect of, you know, these do feel like they're Easter eggs that are being blown out in front of us. You know, think about the journey to stuff, you know, none of that felt like a journey to, you know, it's again, that purposeful misleadingness. Um, you know, you think about what you said about with the trilogy and stuff with the no game plan. What do we have right now? The second film in this trilogy is over and it basically feels like we've just reset the trilogy and we're right back at the beginning. Where are we going to go from here? We've got one film to tell three films worth the story because we just reset everything we set up. Uh, so that is definitely made it where, speculating has lost some of the luster it once had. Uh, you know, it was shiny and new and now it feels like, you know, yeah, it's silver and it's tarnished. Like I, and I think that there is something that they could do about this. I'm still waiting for somebody out there and gosh, for, for one hand, I would love it to be me to sit down with Pablo and Chi and a couple of these people from the story group and really get them to talk about the process of the story group and what the intention of the story group was and the reality of how it's working and the potential for the future moving forward. Like there's a lot of questions and a lot about the structure of the story group, how it works and the people that are and are not involved. Cause like, I, I think Filoni needs to be part of this. I think that, you know, you get JJ Abrams. I think when you give the directors as much authority as they're giving the directors, that automatically should put them into a seat and that they are there. Every one of these meetings from that point on until their film is done. Um, you know, I, I think back on the new Jedi order and the Bible that they had, that they would give to the writer to catch them up on this is the story we're telling. And that is one of the reasons why I love the New Jedi Order story so much is because so many people went into making that story work. You know, it was a series. It was an era. And what was the series? It was a 19 book series. But what was it? A bunch of standalones and trilogies and duologies. I mean, it, it was it wasn't 
the only reason why it was a series was because of the fact that they put all their eggs in one basket and they treated it wholly. They're like, we're going to tell a story and this is the story we're telling. And that's what we need to see with these trilogies and stuff. We need to know that this is the purpose of this. You know, I mean, if the purpose of this trilogy is to introduce Ray in a new generation, okay, that's we've done that. But they're not saying that that's what the whole purpose of this is. They're kind of like, well, just watch the story. You're going to see it evolve. And yet that we're all out there speculating as where we could go. And you've got a lot of people that are getting perceptions up there. I've always said perceptions will be the devil in the details. And, you know, our perceptions are throwing people off. People are getting mad because it's not the way that they were thinking because they were thinking of all these grand and glorious ways that it could have gone. And we didn't. So, you know, I think that, that this is a heart of what's going wrong with a lot of people's internal fandom. Um, I think a lot of people are losing faith. Uh, you know, I mean, I, that was something I said, you know, in story group, I trust. And yet I, I have not seen and heard enough about how they operate to 100% say, I trust them. I trust the individuals that are on that group, but I don't trust what they're doing. You know, think about Leland Chi back before Legends became Legends. He was known for tweeting, I'm not going to let it be two. It's all one. It all fits. Because he was part of the Lucas licensing group that was selling that lie that it was all in a, a under quotes, official continuity. You know, that was because that was what they were doing. They were selling books. They were in the market to sell books. So they said what they felt was true to continue to sell the books. And so, I mean, I, I get worried in that regard because, you know, they want us to watch the films and stuff. And we got this story group out there that it's, you know, it's to make us feel like we've got a safety net. And yet it's not catching the people. The people are falling and hitting the ground. Their brain matter is splatting all over the damn floor. Like, come on. We got to have some safety measures here for the sake of the story. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm with you in that aspect of I'm not speculating as much as I used to. And it has taken an effect on the fun that I have in the speculation, because that was a big chunk of the fandom was speculating of where we could go from here. And they've taken that. Yeah, it definitely is. It's not a speculator's market, so to speak anymore when it comes to star Wars. I mean, and and part of that is, you know, I might speculate a little bit about what might come up in a film, but I don't know, you know, aside from the broad strokes. And we talked about this, I think in one of our year in review episodes, you know, when you've got something like The Last Jedi, that was very surprising. I don't think I could have predicted a lot of stuff that was going to happen. Most Star Wars stories is are somewhat formulaic in their broad strokes, but not in the details. So speculation, I don't find all that interesting because generally you're able to hit most of the big plot points. And it's just a matter of the details. And when you start speculating on the details, it's easier for that to be wrong because you're getting more granular. So I don't really tend to do it. I can think back to right before The Phantom Menace came out. And speculation where basically using the trailers shot by shot, you could kind of figure out what the bulk of that story was going to be before it even hit theaters. And while it still made for a fun experience to go to the movie and see it, none of the fun of the speculation and surprises were there. It's almost like speculation in Star Wars, in some cases, is almost like being spoiled because you can get the broad strokes, unless you get something like The Last Jedi that kind of comes out of left field and is completely unpredictable. And then you've got the fact that because we're not getting momentous things happening in most of the books or the comics or to some degree in some of the movies, I don't speculate because I don't care enough. Like, what's your speculation on what's going to happen in Solo? I don't care. I don't care to speculate because that movie doesn't have me excited yet. I mean, it does a little bit more, I guess, now that we've got some trailers 
But am I back there going, ooh, I wonder what's going to happen in Solo. I wonder what happens to this character. I wonder how he gets the Falcon and how he has a falling out with Lando. It's, I'm, I, no, I, you know, it'll be nice to know that, but I don't care enough to speculate on how it's going to happen for the most part. Um, there's some small speculations that I've made relating to it, like, you know, maybe Thandie Newton's character is somehow related to Lando and it's something that Han does to her that causes the, you know, after what you pulled thing. But beyond that, not really. Uh, and part of that, I think comes down to, uh, I mean, speculation in an era in which, like you said, it's like picking a number before they've chosen it. Speculation stops being speculation because what you're supposed to speculate on is what is going to happen. This is set in stone. This is what's expected to happen. I want to see if I can guess it right. But a lot of times it seemed like what might be happening out there is that fans are guessing what comes next. The writers of the films have no clue what the hell they're going to do and may see fan speculation and go, ooh, that's a good idea. I'll use that. And it's not that you speculated and were right. It's that you speculated and they decided to use it, which is the opposite order it's supposed to happen in. And sometimes, sometimes you have the opposite of that where they're like, oh, well, that's too obvious. We're not going to do that. You're like, but that was a perfect, oh my God, it wrote itself. Exactly. Exactly. I do agree that it seems like most of the books are being written after the films are supposed to tie into, which on the one hand, it means that we're not getting things that might uh, cause us to speculate sometimes. Um, but I think what really gets me on it is the fact that they do seem to be written after the script is already figured out should mean that the road to Last Jedi, Force Awakens, whatever, the road to books should be able to drop hints and actually give us something that leads into the film. And instead, the road to books have mostly been pointless, have told us little to nothing at all that could be used to explain the film. I mean, the fact that you've got Legends of Luke Skywalker as the road to The Last Jedi and the only effing thing that has anything to do with The Last Jedi, except for just the location of Canto Bight showing up in the story, is, look, it's a big-ass fishing pole. <laughs> no, dude, no. That's not building up to it. It's like the Phasma novel, right? Um, I was not a big fan of the Phasma novel, but it gave us background on Phasma that you would have hoped would have paid off when we see her in the film. And the only way that it pays off, perhaps, is the idea of, see, you weren't going to give a crap about this character when she died. Now that you know her background, maybe you give like 1% more of a crap when she died. That's all that it did! How is that the road to The Last Jedi, especially when it's basically leading up in a lot of ways... More to The Force Awakens than to The Last Jedi. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been a much better one for that one. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, they're basically, they're giving us these stories that are tied into these stories that are mostly set in stone, you would think, uh, once it's actually written as a script. And then we're not getting anything to tie in. Or what's happening is they're making it look like it's written late in the process because, you know, they're coming out just right before the film instead of in the bridge years in between. Because uh, there's not really much time in between, really, anymore. Um, but in doing so, because maybe they're being written during the filming process and the story can still change, they're not being allowed to drop those hints because you don't know if that hint will still mean the same thing in the movie once the final cut is done as it would have in the notes or whatever that would have been given to the author when they were trying to write their tie-in story. So it's just not really working. But I, mean, I don't want to be too unfair to Lucasfilm and the story group and, and Johnson and Abrams and so on when it comes to these films. Because, you know, Lucas was always the man that was perceived to have a plan who really, really 
didn't in many cases, right? I mean, it was Star Wars is going to be one film, then it'll be 12 starting with A New Hope, and then no, it's going to be nine with A New Hope as number four. No, I only ever said there were going to be six, and then it was, oh, well, I only said that I wouldn't make anymore. Not that somebody else couldn't. And all the changes he made, like not deciding that Luke and Leia were actually brother and sister until he was working on Return of the Jedi. Um, the idea of, well, Lucas had these prequels all figured out early. I mean, I remember in the 1990s, it was all, you know, which books are there that Lucas wrote years ago that are actually the Star Wars prequels because we know he wrote all this already. Well, no. Remember the famous line, you know, all I need is an idea when he plops down in the little documentary about the Phantom Menace. And he's kind of making it up as he goes along. But I think with Lucas, he had certain story beats in mind that he figured must happen because he was using archetypes and a classical structure of either the hero's journey or of a tragedy. So in that sense, he had the big points laid out. It was a question of how does he get there and what are the character relationships in between. Whereas you look at the current films, and I don't think even that type of plan is there. Uh, it's all just sort of winging it as they go. And that's not going to be the way to give us a story, usually, that's going to give us a fully satisfying beginning, middle, end, and have all these overarching themes and overarching concepts and foreshadowing and all that. Because you can't foreshadow something intentionally if you don't know what's going to happen later. You can foreshadow it accidentally, but that's not good storytelling. That's effing luck, right? That's you were a lucky storyteller that you realized, oh, hey, I made this mention before. I guess I can use it. Um, is it a continuity tie-in? Sure. Does it make for good continuity? Maybe. Was it intentional continuity? Hell no. No. It's a happy accident. Good job. You accidentally did something right. Um... There needs to be more of a structure, I think, to it. And yes, it can still morph. It still allows the writers some freedom, just like Lucas was changing things as he went along, trying to decide what to do with the characters while he was writing. But there needs to be some type of roadmap in terms of just where things generally will go. I mean, there was, there's no way in my mind that there was a roadmap as of the time of The Force Awakens that says Snoke will be dead by the end of episode two of this trilogy. <laughs> Right. No way. So now here's Abrams having to figure out what to do next with that now that it's changed. Um, if you're going to have a structure, go for it. Now, now, it could be that maybe what we've got here is a series of films that's more like, say, the Aliens films, where it's, here's a movie. Oh, we're going to make a sequel. Let's see where a logical jumping off point would be, and let's make a sequel. And then, oh, that did well. Let's make a sequel. But then you shouldn't be numbering them 7, 8, 9, etc., because that gives the impression that it's a trilogy. And a trilogy is one story that should have a backbone structure. If it's just, like, like the, age, the Alien trilogy is usually just sometimes used to refer to Alien, Aliens, and Alien 3, because they're the, the Ellen Ripley, non-clone Ripley stories, and for a while there, there were only three of them. But you don't see trilogy branding all over everything. Uh, and granted, you don't see sequel trilogy branding all over everything without it being uh, something kind of tongue-in-cheek because people realize it's, you know, it's just three movies that happen to fit together, right? It's not mm -hmm. a trilogy with a trilogy structure. Star Wars is known for its trilogy structures. Where's the structure? It's on fire! The structure's on fire! <laughs> Collapsing like a Jedi temple. Um, They're throwing gasoline! That's not water, guys! See, I think about with Lucas, you know, that was when you had those opportunities for the errors that everybody picks the EU apart for, you know, and when we're following that model going forward, that's where I worry. It's like, okay, so we had 25 years to get to a point where the powers that be felt like writers couldn't write a Star Wars story because of the oversaturation. 
And yet we are putting that same model in play and going again, but going at light speed with how many books and stuff are going to be putting out. I just, that to me is a recipe for disaster. We're going to be in the same boat within 25 years, if not sooner. And I don't see that as a good plan. And it's, it comes down to sort of, you know, the intention of, is this meant to be something that's overarching or is it meant to each film be kind of its own thing? And then we will tie them together like a tapestry after the fact, more like making a quilt out of pre-existing parts of cloth rather than actually making the entire garment, the entire blanket or whatever it is all in one shot. Um, it makes me think of Ryan Johnson. And this is something that's stuck in my mind ever since the film came out. Um, Ryan Johnson, perhaps sitting there trying to come up with his ideas for episode eight and in the process, listening to weird Al Yankovic and happening to read, I believe the, the album was bad hair day, but the song, everything, you know, is wrong. If you've ever heard that song. The, the, the chorus is basically everything, you know, is wrong. Black is white up is down and short is long. And everything you thought was just so important. Doesn't matter. Everything, you know, is wrong. Just forget the words and sing along. All you need to understand is everything, you know, is wrong. Um, and in essence, that's kind of what he did. And it's just, and it literally was everything. There's not, there's not a lot left after episode eight that you would have expected to happen after episode seven that you could now expect to happen in episode nine. It's like a retooling of where they needed to go. And if there was a plan, then that doesn't work either because that plan would have been, okay, here's a plan. And then here's something where we let them do his own thing. He did something completely different than what we thought the plan would be. We liked it. So we're letting him do it, but now we need a new plan. The idea is that you need a plan and you need to stick with it In teaching. We call it big, uh, Start with the end in mind, right? If I'm going to teach a unit and I know what my students are going to be assessed on at the end of that unit, then I can plan the unit bit by bit to make sure that everything that needs to be covered gets covered. They get the understandings that they need on everything, the skills they need on everything, so that at the end they are ready for what I'm expected to get them ready for. Begin with the end in mind. That helps greatly when it comes to storytelling as well, and it doesn't seem to be the the thought process going on here. They are much more of the first year teacher at this point where you kind of know what's in the unit, but you're only really looking at the curriculum every couple of days to plan out the next day's stuff because you're just treading water at this point and not able to have the time to plan full units at a time. You can only plan a day or two ahead at most. And when you do, you feel excited because holy crap, I know what I'm doing two days from now. Um, <laughs> that is a survival mode. That isn't a long-term success mode. So I'm hoping, I think we're both hoping that now that things are kind of getting going, now that apparently they are getting Marvel to start uh, to sort of do things the Star Wars way, not the quote-unquote Marvel way, as was discussed yeah. in a recent interview, where the Marvel way is there's kind of a present and hell with it, we're just going to throw crap against the wall and hope that it sticks, that maybe we're going to wind up getting a plan. Um, but it would be again, moving away from being a first, second year teacher or so to becoming more experienced and being able to make those longer term plans that right now they're not quite ready to do. I f they're capable of doing it. I, I have no doubts about the capability of the people on the story group. Right. But do I have doubts about what they're doing? Yeah, absolutely. And they probably should change the approach if we're talking about the long term viability of the saga as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Marvel's approach is, you know, we don't need 365 days in a year. I mean, we don't even need 28 days in, in February. We just, 
We just if we need more days, we'll put the days on, man. Spider Man did all this stuff in that month. I don't care if there was three hundred days that month. He did it. <laughs> scary, man. Just scary. Our last one here is actually a comment that was made onto the StarWarsReport.com website. And Riley Blanton, of course, of Star Wars Report, uh, he sent that over to us because there's a specific mention of Beyond the Films. And he thought it was perhaps more appropriate for us to deal with it on this show than otherwise. So we have an item here from Mr. Chris, Chris Gassler, who says, Hey, fellow Star Wars fans. First, thanks for the podcast. I may be in the middle of listening to another podcast when you drop a new episode, and I'll put the other one on hold and listen to yours. And I love the point of view of Beyond the Films. Nathan and Mark are a welcome point of view when other podcasts tend to sound the same. Okay, now to the exercise, which could be interesting. What if you were tasked with renaming each film? As if you were shown the completed movie and Lucasfilm paid you to title them. Of course, the stipulation is that you cannot use the original names because, of course, our tendency would be to say that they're just perfectly titled. I hope this sparks some interesting discussion. Mr. Chris, Chris Gassler. Mm, Chris, it actually does. And uh, I, I'm, I'm fudging your stipulation here because you said I can't use the original names. And I was I, I panicked. But then you said because, of course, our tendency is to say that the titles are perfect. I use the names in different films. So here we go. Episode one, Darkness Rises. Episode 2, The Shroud of Darkness. Episode 3, Nightfall. And Rogue One, I'm going to call that either Operation Stardust or Operation Death Star. I think the Han Solo film should just be titled Millennium Falcon. Episode 4, I'm calling that one Return of the Jedi. Episode 5, I'm calling that Empire's Wrath. Episode 6, Empire's End. And Episode 7, I'm calling that one A New Hope. Followed by Episode 8. A new rebellion. I like that. Those are some good names. Um, I had to go kind of tongue in cheek on some of these, and then it kind of gets a little more serious as we go along, I suppose. Uh, for the prequels, I think that episode one would have been uh, taxes and blockades and droids. Oh my! Or Jar Jar's big adventure. Then episode two, uh, just one title in this case: Unevident Forced Love Conquers All. And then episode three. I would do anything for love, and I will do that. As in going to the freaking dark side. Um, although I do think with those, I think there's a couple ways you could go, uh, which is take the old uh, Papa Roach album song where it's love, hate, tragedy, all is one word, and just flop hate and love. And you could call, and you could just have episode one hate, episode two love, episode three tragedy. And I think that would work and give you that broader thing. I almost <laughs> said that we should grab. Uh, bits of phrases from Hamlet to use for the three steps because of the idea of it being a tragic structure and the need to be reminded that it's tragic, not a hero's journey. Because that was what a lot of people complained about with the prequels. They didn't feel like the originals because the story arc was so different. But I think that probably would be getting into uh, bad territory to do so. Although I do think looking at it that you remember back when the movies came out and, and that's the prequels at least, when they came out they each had sort of this iconic new music and they took that music and made a music video out of it. And then eventually they took those music videos and built it even more into the, well, I guess right around the time of, Return of revenge of the Sith, they put out a DVD inside the original soundtrack that is basically a musical journey. And it's that yeah. type of thing done to a lot of different star Wars music to take you through the saga. And then eventually that sparked the concerts 
originally known as a musical journey, then known as Star Wars in concert, right? Uh, I think the names of the songs that they picked to use for the music videos of each of the three prequels actually probably capture their feel better than the titles on the films themselves. So it would be Episode 1, Duel of the Fates. Episode 2, Forbidden Love. Episode 3, A Hero Falls. Bingo! Right? Because um, I think A Hero Falls, there's a couple different names they use for that video. Uh, a Hero Falls is the way I tend to remember it. And then, let's see. And, and, and that was the name of like, the music video for it. I think the song itself is called Battle of the Heroes or some such. But A Hero Falls is what they call the video. And then as you get into Rogue One, I would say, since hope is everywhere now, I would say maybe Embers of Hope. Something like that. Ooh, that's good. I like that one. Uh, A Boy, A Girl, and a Galaxy for (laughs) A New Hope, because that really was kind of what Lucas was going for, kind of the, the, it sounds almost like a fairy tale-ish type thing. Um, It's more lighthearted in spirit and in tone. It's only as time went on that it started to get, you know, different tones, but... You think about at the time some of the things that he was saying about it. Then maybe uh, if you really want to go for something that has a double meaning that automatically makes someone think, ooh, then we'll call episode five Revelations. Which, of course, when you drop the S is the last book of the Bible, you know, the future, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, which, of course, gives that sense of foreboding something. So, you know, something's going to be revealed and there's something foreboding about it. And then I would probably truncate the episode five title to make one for episode six and simply call it The Emperor Strikes. Instead of The Empire Strikes Back or The Empire Strikes, as there was a comic of that name back in the early Marvel days, have it be just The Emperor Strikes. As for the sequel trilogy, uh, a new something, a new threat, a new whatever, right? Uh, and then I would probably have called The Last Jedi The Ties That Bind or something like that. Granted, uh-huh. it's a cliche kind of title. But at the same time, you know, it really does kind of get down to a lot of the elements of that story. Uh, in terms of the personal relationships, the different dynamics between them, the relationship between the different heroes and different factions and the galaxy at large, you know, the ties that bind would work well. Um, of course, if we're talking about ties, then we could also have called it, you know, sorry, I'm not home right now. I'm walking on these spider webs, but that probably wouldn't work either. Um, yeah, that, that was that bad no doubt joke that nobody got. That, that ties that bind, that could also be used for the scene where Poe and Finn escape from the Destroyer in uh, The Force Awakens. <laughs> Very true. And if you really want to go back to it, you could go and, and not just look at them escaping, but you could see them uh, doing their, their uh, you know, you're alive, you're alive, I like you in my jacket kind of thing. And that could be a different <laughs> kind of ties that bind, uh, a romantic ties that bind there, perhaps. So, yeah, I, mean, I think it's an interesting, an interesting mental challenge. I definitely would argue that it seems like the titles for the original trilogy fit better than the titles we got for other movies afterwards. In particular, Rogue One as a title has never worked very well for me because I think that, like, I was waiting for it to mean something within the context of the movie. And when it did, what it means in the context of the movie is stupid. Yeah. It's like, like name uh, of a stolen shuttle. You, you need a call sign. What's your call sign? Uh, uh, Rogue, uh, uh, one. Rogue, ro- Rogue One. That's what we'll call ourselves. That's where you got the name of the movie? That's asinine! <laughs> That's stupid to just be in the film at all, let alone to name the movie after it. They might as well have just said, you know, give me your call sign number. I'll give your mama a call sign number. Zoom and they zoom off or something. What must your mindset be that when somebody asks for a call sign number and you have to make something up on the spot, that the, the name that comes out of your head is Rogue? Who thinks the word Rogue randomly? 
<laughs> well, and they could have they could have done an homage to Lucas, made it be THX one one three eight. That would even have made more sense, you know, him just babbling like random letters and numbers or something like that, you know. But but Rogue Rogue One, so because Rogue is just not a word that's going to be on the top of your mind most of the time. So where does he pull that out of his butt from? Uh, but also, if it's you know. You need to give them a call sign so so they don't think that we're doing something wrong so we can get out of here. So what do you say? Rogue. What is your tight what is your ship's call sign? Our call sign is we're getting the hell out of here, kiss our asses. One. <laughs> no! You don't reveal your purpose in it. That's like if you're trying to sneak behind enemy lines and your ship is called Spy One! <laughs> you're a moron! <laughs> so yeah, the Rogue One title is just never made sense to me in that sense because uh, yes it ties in more directly to the film as something like saying a phantom menace attack of the clones like attack of the clones should be more like you know attack repelled by the clones or attack of the droids because the clones <laughs> are the ones saving the day you know a uh, phantom menace kind of fits revenge of the sith fits um i would say the force awakens fits the last jedi fits kind of as a tongue-in-cheek thing because of the belief about what luke would be and the sort of the sense of what ray would be and all that kind of stuff um mm -hmm. and solo of course I, I guess um, my my alternate title. I guess we didn't say one for solo. My alternate title for solo would be. What? 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 No, I would say my alternate title for solo would be uh, something along the lines of you know, like you got like um, oh, what's the one? Uh, is now you see sleep me sleep apnea? <laughs> well, isn't there a movie called like now you see me or something like that or yeah, or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Um, now you see me one and two. Some there should be something in the title that is like tongue in cheek, like who is that to reference the fact that he doesn't appear to be like the Hansel that we know at all or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, something, something you know, or or what you pulled, you know, or or something <laughs> like the heist. You know, uh, give it some name other than just solo, because I don't know how to abbreviate that anymore. Like when I'm writing the next edition of this of uh, a song on home video, and I've got T E S B R O T J R O T S T F A R O, then I'll have what S H S if you're going with some of the international titles, because they're calling it Han Solo in other countries. Or I could do Solo A Star Wars Story S A S W S, but now my abbreviation is one letter longer. <laughs> than the word itself. Um, or I could just do uh, S S W S solo Star Wars story. Nope. Now it's the same number of letters. It's not going to abbreviate at all. Um, I don't know how. I guess I'm just going to keep saying solo, solo, solo all the time. So whatever. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think the uh, there's a lot of ways that you could title these films that would be more appropriate in some cases as what we got but as long as they're just not reusing the same titles we've seen before, then I'm good with it. Because at this point, I don't expect the titles to be awesome. I would just hope that the titles aren't so that we have a movie and a Marvel comic and a novel and a video game that all have similar titles that are going to confuse the hell out of people. At least Rogue One, as inane as that title is, ain't nobody going to get that confused with anything unless it's the Rogue Squadron video games or something like that, right? Right. Because everybody's going to get Rogue One. What? There is no Rogue One! Yeah, yeah, yeah there, there shouldn't have been that title. You're right. Like, the whole point of, of making Legends was so people wouldn't be confused, and then we go out of our way to make things as confusing as possible. Well, the RPG, it still pulls from Legends. What the hell does that mean? Well, we're just rolling with it. Oh, this Lego, it's canon adjacent. What the hell does that mean? Uh, just roll with it. 
We're going to use this title. You've used it 500 times. Ah, just roll with it. We should have had a trilogy, right? We already have Heir to the Jedi. So why not Why not a sequel to that called Light Force Rising and then The Last <laughs> Order? <laughs> and, and maybe by the end of it, somebody's ruling the galaxy. So call it the Throne Trilogy, just for good measure. <laughs> the Throne Trilogy. <laughs> oh, Chris, I'm loving this, man. This is, this is great. Could have gotten somebody to write it, you know, a Timothy Bond or something. I don't know. Just... Ugh. Anyway, so, so yeah, fun exercise, fun exercise. I'm pretty sure we've annoyed people, but fun exercise nonetheless. Yes, indeed. Yes. And, and if we did annoy you, be sure to send us feedback. And if you loved it, send even more feedback. Tell your friends. Uh, now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films we'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom and remember you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com I will say again, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. Please, please do. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is literally the best way to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any Star Wars questions or Legends questions or even, heck, Star Trek questions, Nate's down on that, Babylon 5, you name it, just send all those comments and questions about past episodes to our email at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of Audible to see what they're all about. Our sponsors, they have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanding Universe or the Canon One or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. That'll turn out that the Radis from The Last Jedi was called, like, the Kamikaze or something. Ah, Rogue One. Seriously, why'd you name it that? What are the odds that we're going to find out that Snoke, the Prime Jedi, comes from a species called Yuzen Vong? No, 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 no. You can't call them Yuzhan Vong because that would cause confusion. Instead, you got to name it something obvious and dumb, like he is he's a member of the species called the Bisectoids. The <laughs> Bisectoids. <laughs> yes! <laughs> I fully endorse it. He was a member of an original group of warriors known as the Falling Torsos. It would have been great if Kylo would have turned to raise it. He keeps falling to pieces at the damnedest of times. He's half the man he used to be. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Or better yet, Ray turns to Kylo and pulls a Dave Coulier. Hey, Kylo, cut it out. <laughs> Complete with the hand motions. 
I mean, we already have we already have Jar Jar saying how wooed, so let's bring the full house on, right? That's true. That's true. Yeah, Jar Jar did step up a lot of things and stepped into some things too. Yep. Next up, episode nine. Did I do that? <laughs> God, you're killing me, man. You're killing me. Yeah.